In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Today is the ninth day of Christmas. Remember that Christmas is a season of 12 days. And so we started on December 25th, and we will end with 12th night, the 12th day of Christmas, uh, here this Wednesday. And then that will bring us into the season of Epiphany, with the day of Epiphany, uh, January 6th on Thursday. So we uh, still have a couple of days of Christmas to dwell upon the meaning of God becoming man and of his revealing himself to us through his birth uh, to the Virgin Mary. We also have a time to recognize uh, the things that happen in quick sequence after the birth of Christ. And uh, the eighth day, on the eighth day of his birth, he fulfills the law that was given to the people of Israel by being circumcised and named. So that day, we call it Holy Name Day, is uh, always celebrated on that eighth day of Christmas. And so um, we remembered that yesterday. Uh, on the eighth day, all of the male children of Israel are circumcised in accordance with the law that was first given to Abraham. And then on that day is the name, uh, the day they're given the name. And you'll remember that they fulfill that being giving Jesus the name that was announced in the Annunciation by the Archangel Gabriel to Mary. And so they give Jesus the name that the Archangel had announced to them. Then we're moving through a faster sequence, even though uh, today is the ninth day, we're remembering another feast today, and that is the Feast of the Presentation. Uh, it was uh, an also given in the Law of Israel, you'll read about it in Leviticus chapter 12, where the children of Israel were um, to come to the temple or to the tabernacle uh, to be cleansed or to be purified. And depending on whether the child was a male or female, that would depend on how many days uh, they would have for the purification. And so uh, we see in this icon that we're look, going to look at a little bit later again, uh, this uh, feast of uh, the presentation of the Lord. Those that gather and that meet with them are the faithful remnant. And the faithful remnants are those that recognize the calling of the Lord. They recognize the coming of the Messiah because they had been preparing their hearts and they had been waiting for him. A remnant is a piece that's left over. It's a piece uh, that is remaining. And that is who the faithful remnant is. That's who we're called to be. That's the call that we're answering is to be the faithful remnant of the Lord. We've been preparing our hearts through Advent and through Christmas so that when Christ comes again, we're ready and we're able to rejoice so that we would have been faithful in waiting for the Lord to come again. Everybody is going to recognize Christ when he comes again, but some will be terrified and find themselves deep in their sins and receiving the consequence of their sins. The faithful remnant will be those who have been waiting upon the Lord in righteousness and are ready to receive uh, that, uh, that golden crown and the, uh, the, the, the wonderful promises that the Lord has. So that's who we're called to be. We're called to be that faithful remnant that are waiting upon the Lord. And this is uh, all part of that cycle that we've seen over and over again from the prophets where the Lord warns the people about the consequences of sin. He tells them that this is going to happen uh, based on the, uh, their, their living in sin, his uh, revealing the consequence to them, and then bringing them back into uh, love and fellowship with him. 
So we see it over and over again. We see the Lord saying, if you are faithful, this is what's going to happen. If you live in sin, this is what's going to happen. And then regardless, my uh, answer will be to bring you back in the end. And so that good feeling, uh, that good uh, living of righteousness with me. And so that is what uh, we see today in the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31. We see him talking about uh, the faithful remnant. He says, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Uh, here in verse 7 of chapter 31. So he's saying that those who are left, those that will come back and who will receive the Lord's promise of coming back into relationship with him. And we read that it's the Lord himself who will bring his people back. He's the one that's going to gather them. He says, I will bring them from the north country uh, and I will bring even Ephraim, my firstborn, which is a remarkable thing. And many of these passages, we hear the Lord referring to the nation as Jacob or as Israel. Of course, we know that that's one and the same person, that Israel is the name that he gives to Jacob and the promise. But here we also read Ephraim being promised, and Ephraim being promised as a firstborn, uh, which is an incredible thing, right? Because uh, Ephraim, if you remember, is the son of Joseph, who's not the firstborn. He's the 11th child. And so instead of there being a tribe of Joseph who gets a portion you remember that manasseh and ephraim get those two portions and ephraim was the primary tribe of the northern kingdom of israel and it's from ephraim that jeroboam uh, leads that rebellion against uh, israel against rehoboam so uh, ephraim is this rebellious tribe they're the ones that lead israel away uh, and that are responsible for leading israel apart from judah and yet the lord is promising right he's promising that they too will be welcomed back and that they'll be treated as a first born which is the promise of adoption the promise of adoption isn't that you're brought into a family and you're treated as an also ran as a second class child but that you're brought in and to be treated even as the first child and so that's the promise that he gives to Ephraim. And he addresses how it is that he brings them back. We see that this remnant isn't this uh, strong, bold, warrior type class of people. He's saying that they are blind, lame, and pregnant. What a picture. Blind, lame, and pregnant. If there was ever a group of people that needed help, that needed protection, that needed guidance. And so that's who the Lord says. He doesn't say, I'm going to do good things for the strong and those who can take care of themselves. He says, I'm going to care for those who are seeking my help, those who are calling out and crying out for protection, those who cry out to me for guidance, who cry out to me for comfort. Those are the ones that I'm going to lead beside brooks of water, that I'm going to lead into the right pathways, that I'm going to bring back into my good pasture. And he says he's going to do that and gather them as a shepherd keeps his flock. And that's an analogy that we've talked about, of course, at Jesus the Good Shepherd over and over again, that those who would be the sheep to the shepherd are the ones who hear the shepherd's voice, right? Those who belong to the shepherd hear the shepherd's voice and they respond. The good sheep hears the shepherd call their name and the sheep run to the shepherd, right? They come to him. And so they gather around him because it's around the shepherd that the flock is made a flock. It's around the shepherd that they have protection. It's by following the shepherd that they walk into good pastures and that they have protection. And so uh, he would be the shepherd who would guide them by his own voice. He says, I will gather them into the goodness of the Lord and I will satisfy them. I will comfort them with my goodness. 
So it's the very goodness of the Lord, it's the righteousness of the Lord that he would comfort us with. It's his own person that he would gather us to. And he says that he would provide with us a radiant goodness over grain, wine, and oil. These are the instruments that we see of sacrament. Sacrament is the way that the Lord gathers us to him, that he feeds us and protects us. He does this. He shares with us his goodness through sacrament. He shares his goodness with us through baptism. He shares his goodness with us through holy communion, through uh, repentance, right? Through um, all these means that he gathers us and that he unites us to him. And he does that with these three primary tools, these simple everyday tools, oil, wine, and grain or bread oil he uses for blessing for healing of the sick he uses it in baptism to create made us for the indwelling of the holy spirit of course bread and wine are the tools of holy communion that become his body and blood that he shares his goodness with us week after week that he feeds us with his own body and strength so he would gather us as a father as a shepherd into his goodness and he would fill us with his oil with his wine and with his grain. And he would do this if we would but listen to his voice as the faithful remnant that waits for him. And of course we see these prominent faithful remnants that wait upon the Lord and Simeon and Anna as the Holy Family comes into the temple at Jerusalem. Remember that there was um, uh, a couple of things that we need to remember. First is that uh, if you had a, a female child or a male child, the time of uh, purification would be different. Uh, so for a male child that was a firstborn, it was 40 days of purification. Do you think that means anything? 40 days? Huh? Right? This is the 40 days of uh, reign of Noah. This is the 40 years of wilderness. This is the 40 days of wilderness of Christ being tempted, right? 40 is this time of purification. It's this time of being set apart, right? Being set apart for the Lord's use, being washed by him, being prepared for him, and coming forward. And so that's what the Virgin Mary and Jesus do. And remember that it's purification of blood. We uh, see lots of places throughout the Old Testament that what they're being cleansed or purified from is blood itself. They understand uh, that blood is uh, dangerous, that uh, uh, it's contagion, and that it can spread illness. And so um, after a mother has bled in childbirth, she needs time to heal, she needs time to wash, she needs time to rest with her child. And then after that resting and washing time, it's the time for her to come back with the child for them to be uh, purified. So that's the, the first thing. The second thing is that sacrifice itself is purifying, which we don't always think of it that way. Often we think of sacrifice by the way the pagans thought of sacrifice, that it's a way of us giving something up. It's a way of killing something that we really like. And when we talk about sacrifice in daily life, we talk about giving up something that we love. But that isn't quite what's at the heart of Israel's sacrifice. It's not about giving up something that they love. It's really not even about killing. It's not about killing itself. You understand that the, the killing of the animal isn't the pinnacle of the sacrifice. The sacrifice is once the animal has been slain, the blood of the animal is used to be sprinkled upon the horns of the altar, sprinkled upon that would, would be cleansed. This should strike us as a strange paradox. We're being cleansed from the, 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 the soiling of blood by blood itself. Isn't that strange? To use blood to cleanse from blood? 
That's the paradox of Israel's sacrifice. The blood is cleansing blood. So the blood of the lamb or the blood of the pigeons or the turtle doves in this case is then sprinkled upon the child and the mother. And it's purifying. It's a, a cleansing act that's taking place here. And you'll remember that in Leviticus, they're told that they get the option of what kind of an animal to sacrifice. They can sacrifice a lamb or turtle doves or pigeons. And uh, lots of times commentators will say that um, the indication that they choose the turtle doves or the pigeons is a sign of their poverty, that they couldn't afford a lamb. You'll read that a lot. Another reading of that is that they already had the lamb. Jesus. They were presenting the lamb of the sacrifice. He is the Passover lamb. So they already had a lamb. So they have the turtle doves instead, and their blood is what's used to cleanse Mary and Jesus at their presentation. So here they are being washed, presented to the shepherd, being brought close, and the remnant appears. In our icon of the presentation, you'll see um, that we have... Um, that we have uh, uh, Joseph here, and then we have Anna, the prophetess, and she has um, in her hand a scroll that says, this child has created heaven and earth, so we're reminded that he is creator God. We have the Virgin Mary presenting Jesus. We have the Christ child who's reaching out to his mother. And then we have the prophet Simeon, right, who we read picked him up and held him and lifted him up to God. And you'll see that Anna and Simeon are old people. It's very important that they're elderly. Why is that important? Because for much of society, uh, they had lost uh, some of their value, right? They're no longer able to work. A widow has lost her value. She's got uh, no use uh, for society as far as uh, you know, work goes or caring for children or working in the fields or whatever. Um, Simeon, the same way. And yet they are uh, valuable to the Lord. Right? They're valuable to the Lord. How are they valuable? Because they've dedicated themselves to waiting for God. They've dedicated themselves to waiting for God. They've dedicated themselves every day to going to the temple and praising Him and waiting, turning their hearts and their minds towards God, and that is their focus. That becomes their job. And then when they do that and the Christ child comes, when they're the faithful remnant that's allowed to see Him, they're able to do what? They're able to praise God, and we see that they're proclaiming His name to others. We see that Anna says uh, that He has come to redeem His people and Simeon, of course, has this beautiful song that we sing um, at every evening prayer, right? Lord God, you now have uh, given your servant peace, right, according to his word, right? And so we sing that song of Simeon um, at every evening prayer. And so these two elderly people who had waited upon the Lord, who had dedicated their lives to him, who were uh, waiting upon him, are given this rare opportunity to proclaim who Christ is and to celebrate uh, the gift of God and his redeeming of his people. And of course, um, we read that, uh, that they do this, that they talk about how he is revealing himself, not just to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. And it is uh, it's the redemption of Israel um, by his blood. So uh, redemption is, is this act where God takes us uh, and he brings us back from those consequences of sin. He takes us from that place of death, which is the consequence of sin, and he claims us and he brings us into life in him. And, and the response 
that God's people have to this, the response that we have in recognizing who God is, recognizing what he's done for us, is to praise him. And the praise of the glory of God and of his work is what we call doxology. Doxology. As Trinitarian Christians, when we praise God, when we praise his glory, we do it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There's lots of doxologies that we do on a Sunday. There's the, the great doxology that we call the Gloria, right? We, we sing that sometimes. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth, right? And we say that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's the little doxology that we say after every uh, psalm that we read, right? After the, we're done reading the psalm, we say glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. That's a little doxology. We sing a doxology, right? Praise God to whom all blessings flow, right? We sing that doxology. The Eucharistic prayer ends with a doxology, right? By him and with him and in him and the glory of God, right? That's a doxology. So there's four doxologies, four praises to the glory of God. And St. Paul gives us one here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that's actually one doxology and one sentence can you believe it those 11 verses are one sentence in the greek it's one long doxology and it's a trinitarian doxology of course it starts with like all of our collects like all of our prayers starts with an address to the father blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ so there in the very first portion the very first line we already have two persons of the holy trinity right blessed be god the father and of our lord jesus christ right and and he's blessing god he's glorifying and praising him for the salvation right in christ who has blessed us in christ do you see that he blesses us in christ it's not that Christ gives us a blessing, but we are blessed when we come into the life of Christ. That's where we receive our blessing. He chose us in Him. We are chosen in Christ. <coughs> so not only are we blessed in Him, but we're chosen in Him. Now this choosing is interesting because you're going to see a word here that um, has lots of red flags for lots of people. This word predestined. He uses it over and over and over again. And some people have gotten confused through the centuries of the church that predestining means pre-choosing or, or making somebody do something. That if you're predestined for salvation, you don't have a choice. And that's confused thinking. See, God's plan for all people is salvation. He didn't create us for damnation. He didn't create us for death. We were all made for God and for his purpose of dwelling with him. He didn't make some for salvation and then make some for damnation. Right? All people are created. His plan since Eden was for all people to come to him. We read in, in John chapter 3, right? God so loved who? Some of the world? For God so loved a few people? Is that what it says? No, it says, for God so loved the whole world. Right? So God's plan has been for all people. But then if we don't have any choice, if there's no free will, why would he write us these letters in the first place? Why tell us anything? Why call us into righteousness? Why teach us a life of goodness? Because we have a role to play. Because there's a response that we have to make. Because we do have free will. We can choose to be in him. 
So this predestining does not take away free will, but God's plan has always been for us to dwell with him. His plan is always for us to be with him in paradise. So he blesses us in Christ, he chooses him, he chooses us in him before the foundation of the world, and he chooses us, he plans for us to be adopted. That had always been his plan, that we be adopted as sons through Christ. That is, that because Christ is a son and because we dwell in him, we too become children of God. And it is by the purposes of God's will, right, because it's his will that we join ourselves to, that we're able to praise him through grace. And it is through his blood, we read in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. This is again that sacrificial language because he is the lamb that is slain. It's his blood that blesses us and cleanses us so that we can be adopted and come into a life with God. It's through his blood as the sacrificial lamb. Right? His plan is to unite all things in heaven and earth, we read in verse 9. Right? His plan is always to unite heaven and earth. That's the plan of salvation. It's not that a few remnants get taken off into someplace else. His plan is for heaven and earth to be united through the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He takes flesh and the body of the Virgin Mary and his divinity, and he joins them together and he unites heaven and earth in himself. And when we participate in the will of the Father, we too are united with heaven and earth. We participate in that unity. And we are sealed now, the third part of the Holy Trinity doxology, we are sealed now at the bottom and the second to the last line, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is that seal. That's the oil that we're sealed with in chrismation and baptism. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is what? He's the guarantee. He's the guarantee. It's like when things come off of the factory line, right? And they're inspected, right? And there's the inspector's guarantee that this product has been made well, right? We've come out of baptism, and it's the Holy Spirit who inspects our hearts, and he's the one that guarantees us, who says, yes, this one is made and intended for heaven. We have been sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit until until we acquire possession of it. What does that mean? That's the resurrection. Our promise is that we will be resurrected as Christ is. So what we are waiting for finally is that we too will receive resurrected bodies. The guarantee of the Holy Spirit is until we have unity with the Father in these resurrected bodies and we gain possession of everlasting life. So that's doxology. Praising God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, dwelling with the Holy Trinity, participating with them in the unifying of heaven and earth. That is what we pray. That is what we praise. That is what we sing. But we do more than that. We're called to do more than that. We're called to do more than sing and pray. We're called to live. And our lives can become doxology. Our lives can become the praise of God. When we listen for the shepherd's voice, when we perceive the will of the Father, when we allow ourselves to be cleansed by the Son and we live in Him, in our daily lives we seek Him, 
and we watch him and we listen to him and we allow the Holy Spirit to seal our souls to be a guarantee upon our lives knowing that our purpose is to participate in that unifying of heaven and earth our lives become doxology may we live lives of doxology this day and forevermore